My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Victoria Modesta has been called the world's first bionic pop artist. At 20, she chose to have her leg amputated. A procedure that might have devastated someone else empowered her instead to become the creative force she is today, a multidimensional performance and recording artist. Her natural beauty and ability to articulate her post-disability sensibility have thrust her into the global conversation around how we look at our bodies and develop our full potential as human beings. Most recently, she's made news by selling a video that went viral on London's Channel 4 back in 2014. She sold it as an NFT. Everyone must check it out for themselves. You could see it on YouTube. It features Victoria looking fierce in a specially designed spike prosthetic. Though made years ago, that viral video with the tagline, some of us are born to take risks, is reborn viral once again. At the intersection of science, fashion, technology, and the arts, Victoria is at the brink of a journey that's destined to take her on a high-tech carpet ride to where no man or woman has gone before. Welcome, Victoria. What an introduction. <laughs> you inspired me. What could I say? You know what Aww, I mean? Thank you so much. I mean, it, 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 this kind of thing inspires me back. It's a full loop. Let's talk about that video that you just sold, and it's in the news once again, talking about full loop, right? You yeah. made that in 2014, a very different time in your life and in the world's life as well. Mm-hmm. A lot has happened over that years. So how does it make you feel, and do you see, does the video look very different to you now, given the time that has passed? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because there's a few things about it. At the time when the video was created, there was a really powerful, quite large team behind it. And everybody's intention was very strong in terms of let's disrupt popular culture. Let's disrupt what we think of a popular person on screen doing something that looks like pop. And even just the way it was launched, it became viral because it was a new story. I mean, who launches a music video as a new story? <laughs> you sort of try to, and occasionally it makes news, but it's not actual sort of news that something new is happening in here that's so different. I feel like when it originally came out, the Channel 4 team and Sam Farahman, who worked on it with me, it made such an impact. But I also knew right away, you know, it was meant to be a national campaign. And from hours of it being on the internet, it was up into millions trending on YouTube. And so it had this specific weird internet magic power. So I think from that moment, I knew that there was something really different. And as the years went on and it continued reappearing and being featured in mood boards and different museum exhibitions and you know everything from disability to design and architecture and fashion, and I came to understand that the NFT space is, is the crypto art space is forming. I was just like, wow, this is literally, you know, 
this piece was made with this energy that is happening within this community of just let's create our own wedge, you know, spread the weeds and just like create our own path. It's been really fascinating, to be honest, to see A, how much has changed in society when it comes to seeing someone like myself, you know, differently abled person in this kind of avant-garde art space, but also how relevant it is and how that video still represents the message and the voice of so many people that are still trying to create a place for themselves in society. So it's been really emotional, to be honest, and quite powerful. Body awareness in general, since that was made, has become such a big subject matter. We see it almost everywhere. Gender, for example, body shaming in the fashion world, you know, what is the right body? Those questions that everyone thought they knew the answers to once upon a time. Oh, yeah, totally. But I think also it's interesting because in that video, there is a very refined and very specific sort of image of me. But I think that some people who dug around and figured out my (laughs) backstory realize that there's a lot of other weird layers of, you know, subculture of being an immigrant, of being pansexual, of being a school dropout. You kind of name it. (laughs) I feel like it's the time right now to claim your identity that just seems to be not existent in the canvas of pop culture, which is weird. Right. It even questions the concept of identity. Is there one identity that we're supposed to have? It sounds like there are multiple identities. That, exactly that. And this is the absolutely most fascinating question right now where we go into the digital space. The thing that people pointed out about this video was that I was essentially designing my own physical avatar in the physical world, you know, because the image that I have in that video looks like not something that should be possible in real life, right? The spike leg makes you just feel like there is some gravity defining supernatural things happening somehow. You know, so I've I've explored the idea of future identity and, and how we're going to extend and multiply, you know, there is an invisible tentacles and aura around us that's just stretching of what it means to be human. And right now it's really happening, you know, like conversations of should there be rules of who you can be online, you know, can a cool tech bro make a black lady avatar and make money of hers? Is that fine? Are we going to do that? It's exposing the complexity of our inner world We touch upon it, but we don't really talk about who we really are on the inside. And I think that this metaverse idea and the fact that there is all of these really interesting elements of our identity that just because they're not physically visible, you can't touch them, doesn't mean they're real. You know, they're manifesting and they're becoming really tangible. The whole space is questioning, is it real just because you can't grab it with your hands? And that's fascinating to me. You mean in terms of the digital art that's being sold in the NFTs, is, is that something you're excited about? Another sort of cutting edge, I feel that like you live on the cutting edge of the cutting edge. <laughs> I might have to add another <laughs> one for it. So it kind of makes sense that you would be 
in this crypto world and this NFT, is that all a very comfortable space for you to be in? And do you understand it financially as well as all the other possibilities? I do. I have to say that the last time I felt this comfortable in a space and a feeling of community and a feeling of being able to relate to other fellow people around me was probably when I was in my late teens in London in subculture when I was a cyberpunk and I, you know, I would go to really specific parties and be in the undercurrent of that and later on being involved with Torch Garden for <laughs> in the background for about 10 years. You know, I think that there is just sense that you don't agree that and, and you don't feel part of how certain things are valued and how things play out. And of course, that kind of vibe has existed for a really long time. You know, that's why subculture exists. I haven't really felt it in such a potent, fun way, probably since, you know, for like 20 years. And last night I went to a, a small gallery for an NFT artist kind of like meetup downtown LA. And and it was so unusual because I you walked in and people would kind of point out what their avatar is on the clubhouse. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. You know, putting two and two together. And you have this bizarre sense that you sort of know everyone already. As someone who has been around subculture and alternative scenes since my really early teens, I was starting to get quite jaded. I was like, surely there isn't going to be a revival of this feeling like you're just in it together and this whole thing is happening. I feel really kind of hopeful. Whatever it means, I feel like it's real and there's just a really intense energy. And that's what it is. You know, it's like we're being ushered into direction with really strong energy. Well, your work in the past has been described as dark. So while you feel like you're coming into the light now, you know, what are the questions I wanted to ask you later on? But since we're here, do you feel yourself a utopian or a dystopian? Oh, you know, I've always been so utopian. So here's a little bit of an analogy that I like to look at art with, right? Is that, I mean, first of all, I grew up most of my childhood in a hospital. That was the grim reality, post-Soviet and my escape was Disney, MTV, and Hollywood films. That was really where I looked at. And from all of those moments, you know, uh, for better or for worse, through some kind of emotional detachment from my body, I really just so firmly started believing that you just possess the power of architecting yourself, of architecting your life around you, of influencing things that are formed and ideas that are formed, ideas turning into objects and all of that sort of stuff. And for me, what started being really important when I got into my teens and I became a big fan of Matthew Barney and Alexander McQueen and it was really that, you know, why is it that all the villains and the kind of evil powers have the most piercing emotional kind of arrow that they put at you, right? There's this feeling that 
I have a negative message and I'm going to make you feel it really hard. It's like, is it the message or is it the delivery that really actually makes you feel something, right? This is something that I did subconsciously when I was younger, but a little bit more recently, I sort of realized that I want to be aggressively positive. I want to, you know, make sure that you're field of perception is ready and open and alert to receive a message. And what that message is, you know, it can be a positive message. The prototype video that just went as an NFT, that's what it is. It's packaging up the most potent, most deeply felt human struggle and shooting it out with like a dagger. (laughs) That's where it's coming from. One of the people bidding on your piece is Nadia Riot of Pussy Riot, right? So, And you're Russian, and she's Russian. Hey, is there a connection there? <laughs> a Russian connection, or is it acquaintance or nothing? Coming across Nadia from Pussy Riot has been the most craziest thing and completely the product of where we're at now with sort of digital connection I knew of her. We actually were part of the same event in London many years ago called Belarus Free Theatre, which was very politically charged about the fact that there's no art freedom in Belarus and people are literally going to jail. And, you know, we just so happened to have artwork released on Foundation at the same time. So we just met in a clubhouse (laughs) and we connected. She looked at my work and you know, when the auction started, like she just started, we met once again in the clubhouse and she placed a bid live while we were talking and was just like, let's go, (laughs) you know, let's just kick this off, you know, which is just absolutely mind blowing. And as the bids went on, it's like we started connecting. And of course the Russian connection was there But the main thing that we really went over in our conversation was this idea that we are both in a very specific niche category of art where we create social changing messaging with an entertainment quality. We really mostly bonded over the struggle and the specific kind of difficulties that we've both experienced doing that because it's a kind of work where your profile is prominent, you know, your work affects a lot of people and it has really deep emotional impact to your field. But at the same time, it becomes like a hot potato when it comes to how that work lives in the commercial industry because not many brands or labels are interested in supporting a woman with a very strong opinions that really represents a cultural statement, right? Because people just get nervous, right? They get nervous, like brands get nervous supporting something so strong, right? There's a level of neutrality. That definitely is an issue that comes up. They're a little bit more open sometimes today, or at least pretend to be. When you look under the hood, sometimes you realize nothing has really changed. But you did do a piece with Rolls-Royce that was pretty powerful and seemed to go along with your attitude and ideas. It wasn't just an appearance or something like that. Yeah, 
it happened in some kind of a magical miracle. I was the face of Black Badge Rolls Royce, you know, in 2019. And so one of the important things, you know, with all of the projects that I have done that are more commercial, I mean, just at the end of last year, I worked with Spectacles, with Snap Spectacles, and obviously before that, Channel 4, is that it tends to be somebody in the company, in the organization that just is a specifically rebellious person that really wants to make their final appearance and leave a mark <laughs> on the business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need those people, right? <laughs> right? For confidentiality reasons, I can't explain the details, but that tends to be the case. And it tends to be the case where that happens. And I've been very lucky. What I'm interested in is in kind of sophisticated anarchy. I am very interested in observing the commercial rules and goals and values. For me as an artist, I don't feel like I'm entirely anti-establishment or institution. That's not really my vibe. In my experience with those kind of things, every place has that small percentage of people that are genuinely engaged with their work, genuinely want to change their company or the message that it sends to the world. It's just believing in humanity a little bit, I guess, too. You know, I'm not really into generalizing that every kind of industry or person or current of things is just super the same. So when a dark horse of the institution does reach out to me, I'm usually very excited about that. And I do all I can to bring a message and visual that is just on the edge to make an impact, but still get the okay from the CEO somewhere. That's just been my method. I do genuinely believe that underneath it all, there is a certain level of humanity that needs to be observed with all of these different things. I don't want to get too kind of woo-woo about it. From my perspective, even the reason why the Spike video was as successful as it was, despite it not being everyone's taste, is that it carried a really important human message. And it didn't matter whether it was a student from Parsons or whether it was a retired couple from South of France. It was universal. And there is a universal cultural language that I think can be spoken. Let's talk a little bit about fashion and London, nightlife and fetish scene. (laughs) Because that obviously has an impact on you. I don't know what you brought to them or you were influenced by them or they were influenced by you. How do you feel about it? When you first showed up, were you just a punk kid trying to figure it out or what, what was your sensibility at that time? Um... Gosh. You're too young for punk, but you know what I mean. I Yeah, I mean, I was definitely as punk as I could have been without being there. Uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, I'm just flipping the archive pages and like, <laughs> let's go, let's go to her. What was she doing in that time? It's funny how we compartmentalize things into little chapters. The interesting part, which I'm observing the chapters of my life, and it's really Funny, they went from really extreme Soviet post-USSR hospital life with most no education to then I was in London 
arrived at 12. And by the time I was 14, I went to the first torture garden and I, I went to illegal raves and things like that. I think it helped me because I have such a fluid understanding that I'm mostly just sort of interested in the flow of culture and energy and what influences people to live a certain way or express them a certain way, which has helped me because it really takes effort for me to think about hierarchy that exists traditionally. And I, I like that. Like I used to think that was a disadvantage, you know, like social disability, but it's kind of helped me. For me, seeing the London subculture scene was the adult version of what I imagined the, you know, Disney and Hollywood <laughs> thing to be, right? <laughs> the fetish Disney, yeah, I could see something there. Right? Definitely. So I'm like, it's full of these unusual people. Corella DeVille. And you have the full spectrum of sexuality, identity, fashion senses, and every day you meet someone and you're like, hmm, I'm like, I see... I see how you dress. You must be into that kind of music with this kind of thing, which by the way, I also really love. I love the origins of this dedication that, you know, you couldn't just wear a punky outfit unless you were actually one of those people. Like, I love that. That is probably the one thing that I miss from the fashion industry right now. Fashion is just disposable. You know, you can wear whatever you want and you don't have to have any investment in that culture. So I really appreciate that part. So when I got into it, I was just like, you know, this is fascinating. And also at the time, like I had this really impending, awful problem with my leg, which meant that nightclubs was such a comfortable place for me because I could dress in the most extravagant outfit and be a nighttime creature and people just relate to you from a sense of this aura that you give off, which was a really different experience trying to go to a, a rough British South London school with 12-year-olds. <laughs> but tell me what you were wearing, though, that you describe as outrageous. Oh, man. I was definitely, probably 14, 15, I was a cyberpunk. I had plastic hair. I had dreadlocks. My wardrobe was fully consistent from latex designers, from Cyberdog, from kind of the whole Camden market sort of area, you know, a lot of those designers. I definitely went for a period. I remember when eventually I went back to college to try and finish my school exams. <laughs> I was wearing the New Rock platforms with springs at them like just every day. <laughs> you know, and that was just such a great time. I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And by the time I was 18, I started dating the founder of Torture Garden. And that was kind of mostly in my life for about a decade. <laughs> it's interesting. I like to kind of skim over that part of my life a little bit because it hasn't felt necessarily... You know, I don't know. I just wanted to put it in the back burner. But, <laughs> okay, that's but, fine. We can, tell, we can move on. If no, no, no. But I do feel like, I do feel like the incredible insight that I had throughout that period of time into the subculture, I probably have met every single 
experimental avant-garde artists there is from even people that have passed away, you know, like Fakir Musafar, for example, legendary body artist, you know, every single person that has pushed their life to extreme with performance art. And I am extremely grateful for that experience. And I probably should write something about that one time. because Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm sure it has a big influence on who you are today. So absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway for me for that was the intensity and the purity that happens within that culture and, and the people that dedicate their entire life. This is who I am. This is what I feel. This is what I need to do. And I have to say that even before I did the performance of the Paralympic closing ceremony, which sort of totally just flipped my brain into a different direction, a few years before that, I, I was already doing music and I really started detaching from that community. And my feeling was that I loved, I loved everything about it. What I didn't love is the fact that it's so insular and it just doesn't spill out into the world. And for me, I just really wanted to take everything that I distilled in me and bring it out into the world and into a wider audience. And at the time, imagine imagine pop culture in like 2005 till like 2000 and I don't know, like 12. I mean, it's awful, just awful, awful stuff, you know? And so, so there's a part of me that was just like reminiscing, where is the amazing sci-fi R&B band and amazing 90s movies and like where is all that stuff happening it's a very big inspiration to just kind of run with it and I think that when I stepped my foot into more mainstream media and really just started feeling how my experience of subculture but also just general human tragedy how those collided and what that meant you know I was like, this feels meaningful. This feels like something that I could dedicate my life to. You mentioned the human aspect, which is very important to you, obviously. But also there's the technology aspect. Those are kind of hot and cold in a certain way, if you want to look at that. You were an MIT lab fellow, I understand, which is huge. To that. I've always loved the MIT lab. It has this huge aura. In my life, I even went there to walk around just to be around there at one point. And so I want to quote something because you've talked about the idea that technology can be seamlessly incorporated into our lifestyle on a major level to assist with health, abilities, and expression. In some ways, you could say I'm interested in exploring the future of fashion music and entertainment in a very conceptual way. It doesn't have to be practical, but it should provoke that primal feeling of evolution. Is that why they wanted you at MIT Lab? Because you think like that? Tell me about that whole time and what was going on there. Oh, man. That was like one of the most incredible things that, that have just transformed my life. We released a prototype video, which kind of went out like this SOS call to like-minded people. <laughs> Thank you, internet. <laughs> and it was actually really fascinating because I really experienced the pop culture force machine at the time, you know, 
just your phone blowing off with all the big managers and agents and everyone's like, you know, we want to, we want to, no, we want to. And MIT Media made me realize that at the time, none of those things meant anything other than just being a trophy, like nothing, zero. And I reached out to a biomechatronic professor called Hugh Her, who's a double leg amputee, who's the leading person in the space. And I reached out to him. He invited me to MIT Media Lab and through a series of declines from my agents at the time who were like, you know, they're not, they're not paying you to go there. You shouldn't be going, <laughs> right? When I went there and when I transformed from my London life of, you know, freaks and incredible, just this community of just like self-expression. And I ended up being in a totally different part of the world with also freaks, but just on a more intellectual academic level. From freaks to geeks. Right, from freaks to geeks. (laughs) And I stood there and I was just like, oh my God, there are people who are actually creating and innovating science and technology and they think like me. And this is just absolutely fascinating. And I think that five months later, I got out of all of my big global contracts and I pursued kind of probably about for two, three years. I was just like a student of the culture. I went to a lot of conferences, you know, because I, I, I didn't have an education, but I'm extremely interested in things that I'm interested in. And the whole ethos of MIT Media Labs that you, you know, practical learning and just following this kind of wave of creativity through the academic outlets, you know. So I've met people and I just went to space conferences, to future fashion conferences, and I just really wanted to absorb, like, what does it mean? Instead of just dreaming about it and writing about it or just pretending it, what does doing it looks like? You know, and I think the reason why I was called out is because I didn't come from that world, but I was doing it. I was trying to actually do it, maybe with primitive things, you know, like the design of my spike prosthetic wasn't very technologically revolutionizing, but there was a feeling that I wanted to express in that that resonated with that being in that space was totally transformative. My life changed forever, really. So did they give you a positive spin on technology as it applies to everything and incorporating it into fashion? A lot of people are still stuck on analog. They want the vinyl. They want old things. They wouldn't dream of having a chip in their body. Would you? (laughs) Okay. So this is the really strange thing is that the kind of transformation that happened inside of me that made me feel almost romantically nostalgic about interfacing with technology in that way just happened very naturally through sorting out my health. It really did. You know, there's this idea that it's us, there is an inanimate object, you feel there is this barrier, you feel like there's this thing, you know. The funny thing about resolving disability issues with technology is that you can't possibly have this feeling of hostility towards this device because this device is ultimately 
helping you really change your life. So you start to really pay attention to it. You start to have a certain appreciation for it. And you really start, in my case, having more design, fashion kind of mind, I really started looking at how the smallest design details really affect how I feel and how other people are affected around me, which is really the thing with fashion, right? Walking into a room, having a strong silhouette of your outfit is totally different to something else. So there's that element. And also when I did go to MIT Media Lab and when I saw everybody's work, it's like the people who are creating technology outside of the consumer market are artists. They are artists. It's their different canvas. They think of code. They think of different formulations. They think of different design things. They spend hours. They create it. And I think that, again, not being traditionally educated, it was the same process as going to an avant-garde fashion designer and planning my outfit. It's the same process of creation, of passion, of, of trying to solve and evolve. And that is the thing that I'm very excited about this crypto art kind of movement is that at some point, someone decided to categorize human expression into these really specific things. But for me, I'm interested, what is the driving force behind your creation? How does the process happen? And in my opinion, over the last three years, every single project I've worked on, like the Rolls-Royce, there'll be a whole team of traditional artists and a whole team of technologists and coders and engineers. And I bring them together under one umbrella and they first are freaking out and they're like, how am I going to talk to this fashion director who shot Cardi B's music video? And you can see this tension and they feel like they're really different. And then by the time we're on set, Someone is shooting, someone is coding so that my Tesla coin leg goes off. And it's all the same. It's an orchestra. It's an orchestra of different things happening. So I do genuinely believe that technology just got pushed and squeezed into this consumer thing, this thing that we use, and it's got really specific sort of identity to it. And we just haven't had enough time to really put the focus on how actually it's just an extension of our creativity and our expression and our inner world, you know, our inner imagination manifesting in a different way. So do you trust science today? I wouldn't refer to anything as just the thing, the science. It's all down to people. Like every single problem with innovation that we encounter is a result of our human qualities. Yeah, I was reading this interesting article that was uh, about AI, artificial intelligence, and the people who are working and writing the programs develop that. And they started looking into it and they realized that there were almost no women among all of these men. And there were very few people of color. This is a shocking. These people are making the future in a way, designing the future, and they're still haven't figured out that what you were just talking about, you have to bring together people, disparate groups to work together so you could have that point of view instead of just giving it to people who look at the world one way. 
Absolutely. It's not even just a question of equality and diversity, even within the types of people that end up creating the black box of the algorithm, for example. And let's just be clear, when they're creating some kind of an algorithm for the internet or for any kind of thing, face recognition, whatever it is, that person is essentially injecting their personality they are extending themselves into an algorithm that will then make different decisions. And most of the time, it's not even just about it being male-dominated. Most of the time, it will be a very sensory-reduced person who might not even understand some of the most basic social nuances, right? Somebody who spends a lot of time on their own or a computer. and That's what's frightening me. That is a legit fear. I'm absolutely not scared of science and technology or even AI necessarily, but I'm very conscious of the fact of every single human problem that we have is going to be a direct reflection in those technologies. It's essentially giving us superpowers, right? But we can enhance our shadow parts of ourselves with these technologies, that is real. But I think that a very diverse group of people engaging in the creation of future in any shape or form is vital. There are people who are like promoting transhumanism, all of that stuff. And let's be clear, I'm not interested in that necessarily. I'm just really interested in getting as many people engaged in it as possible. That's why I get really passionate about the future, right? Because that is the only way we can stop ourselves from doing the thing that we do best, which is, you know, make mistakes. Right now, so many people feel that the system is broken, no matter which side of the fence you're on. And with that, trying to imagine a future that can work better in systems that make more sense, that are more sustainable, more empathetic, human, and in any way, some sort of, of a version, but a positive version of that, someplace that people have actually figured things out and don't have to keep doing what we're doing to each other all the time, which is a definition of neurotic, right? You know, we have a neurotic culture that keeps on repeating itself over and over again. Victoria Modesta, what do you say? Last words. <laughs> oh, man. I think that the biggest like little nugget that keeps reappearing in my brain every single time that I start to feel like I can't sense my personal power in the world or, the, or a situation, that's the most important time to reconnect with that. And time and time and time again, I prove myself wrong when I think that because, you know, you just really have to believe it. No one is ever going to come and give you that specific fast forward moving thing that you need inside of you. We are literally in one way or another shaping our future and our culture specifically. It's kind of a responsibility. It's like realizing that you have responsibility for yourself and for what you put out into the world in every single way. But it's really empowering. And I, and I think that the more people feel that right now, the better. Who knows? Thank you, Victoria Modesta. 
for being my guest today on Light Culture Podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopverb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopverb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.